0: Programming Throwdown, episode 126, Serverless Computing with Arez Berkner. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So, you know, a lot of projects that we're doing, you know, either in the spare time or even for your full time, you know, a lot of them require a lot of maintenance. And the maintenance and the, and the overhead can actually really kill your project. It can drain your energy, you know, suck away all the ambition that you had. And so I think, you know, it's really important to make things really fluid and really seamless, especially in the beginning, but even later on. So you're not kind of bogged down with old bugs from things you built a while ago. And so the the biggest kind of maintenance headaches are maintaining, you know, as we talked about in the last episode, you know, maintaining your own database, you know, maintaining, you know, your own uh, installation of all these libraries and these programs and you know, you have a cluster and then you have to add a new you know, machine to the cluster and all of that kind of really can suck kind of the fun out of a side project or it can make even your day job kind of really difficult. So one of the ways that we've really taken this this problem away from developers and made it just really beautiful, the developer experience, is through serverless computing. We're going to really dive into you know, what that means and how that works and kind of explain all of that. And I'm super happy that we have Erez Berkner here, who is a uh, uh, CEO of Lumigo, uh, to hear kind of you know really explain serverless computing and how to write these things, how to monitor them, how to test them, and how to build kind of really nice micro architectures that you can rely on for a long time. So thanks for coming on the show, Erez.
1: Hey, Justin. Hey, Patrick. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Cool, cool. So before we dive all into, into serverless stuff, it's always good to kind of ask folks, you know, how, how are you doing with this uh, COVID situation and how has that affected uh, Lumigo and, you know, are you uh, in the office? And, you know, what was, you know, how has it sort of changed your perspective on, on um, you know, software development and, and running the company?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I'm looking at this, all of the con- main concept of COVID, especially people working from home in two different aspects. One is on our you know our business and on the services we provide. And that didn't change drastically on the one hand side, just because when you go serverless and you go to the cloud, you know, you can in the modern environment connect, work from home, work from office, work from anywhere in the world seamlessly. There's literally nothing there in the office that requires you to go within that network, within that perimeter. So In that sense, the cloud and more specifically serverless, really got our customers really ready for working from home, working remotely. So it's really, really like um, easy transition in that factor. Uh, On the other front, we see COVID pushes organization to try many new things for uh, reducing costs, for being more efficient and that's a, a interesting drive that we're seeing in some organization toward let's try out things that can uh, you know take us you know to, to to go five x better just because we need to be more efficient now in in days where uh, business is changing. So I, I, you cannot you know attribute that completely to COVID, but when you see a drastic adoption in the last couple of years in really modern technology. People are there to try more things out. Especially when it's around cost saving, and that's one point probably of Sarah that we'll talk about. So that's that's on the business on our, you know, on our company. We are working, you know, completely flexible. We people can come into the office, working from home. It's uh, currently it's completely uh, you know open to what people they feel uh, comfortable with.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, my neighbor actually is in Marcom in marketing and communications and his job was massively affected you know compared to mine in the sense that, you know he was going to a lot of uh, events and he was meeting with clients and and you know all of that uh became virtual and that that was a a really big paradigm shift and i think they're still trying to figure out how to do things like ces virtually like how to do that well where you could serendipitously bump into somebody when it's a virtual conference, right? And so there's no physical space, and so yeah, I feel like that is really you know where we're gonna have to see just massive shift in in how people uh, how people you know go around uh, working. So I think yeah, like visiting clients, I would imagine, is
1: really difficult right now. It's probably the the biggest change for sure. And I think that you know I think that this is impacting us as Lumigo a bit less because we are very much self-serve, developer-led company. Uh, so we need, didn't really visit our customers prior to COVID. Our customers mm-hmm. that didn't want us to visit them. They just wanted to do their <laughs> thing. Um, so, yeah, so it was, you know, always really like easy. Hey, connect, try, get value, move on. Uh, that's kind of the type I think that we're seeing that, you know, and me as a developer, I love, I don't want to spend time with a specific meeting in the office about a specific tool. If it works, I want to use it and I want to continue. So on that sense, I think the type of company that are more come for a meeting in the office and meet everybody and start a big POC, that would really change their sales motion. I think a bit less on more the modern self-serve bottom-up developer-led companies.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Cool. So, so. Why don't you kind of give us some background about what kind of path led you to start Lumigo, and and kind of where that journey all started?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'll start by saying that I'm, I'm a developer by heart, but you know, I started 20 years ago, approximately. Uh, Develop. You know, my first role was at the, a company called Checkpoint, a cybersecurity company, and the, as time went by, I got more and more into the the cloud business and the cloud uh, you know cloud security product and learn more about what cloud has to offer that was you know 2010 uh, all the way to 2015 and 2016 is where you know I started to see from you know from within checkpoint this new paradigm of development emerging emerges and mostly around event driven architecture where you want to have you know, decouple more and more of the services about microservices, and 2016 is where I got to know serverless, very much from customers that you know were ahead of the curve and and understanding that you know, serverless is is allowing them to move much faster in development, in cost saving, and how do we do serverless, and specifically with checkpoint, how do we secure serverless, and you know got to, to try and to play and later on to build with serverless and honestly i i got really really excited i got excited and i got i fell in love with the concept of it's so easy to get started to get product to the market and i, I decided that this is one of the main points that we want to i, I want to understand better and i learned that there are a lot of organizations that Oh, a lot of developers out there that are architects that think the same, that really are, believe that this is the right approach. I think you mentioned at the beginning, Jason, you know, it don't don't build it and don't do it yourself, but, you know, consume one more, more of it. You gave the example of databases and it really makes sense. And then at the same time, I started hearing about the challenges in the, in those environments you know, what is hindering the adoption. Why don't we go serverless? It makes sense. It's so, it's really, it's, it's it's fun. And you get things done really fast, but we cannot do it because. And then you, see, you hear about monitoring and about debugging and uh, the tools that are there are not sufficient. The ecosystem is not mature enough. And that's really where myself and uh, Aviad Moore, who is my co-founder and CTO, who were with me in, in this whole journey that I just described, uh, set out to help the community adopt serverless and, and remove the barriers and that's how we started the uh, Lumigo and uh, went into observability monitoring debugging spaces of serverless
0: got it and so i see so, so you're at checkpoint and so checkpoint was you started building serverless or you were just working with other people who had serverless somehow you got a kind of a lot of exposure to it at checkpoint
1: yeah it, it was actually from two ways one was from checkpoint customers uh, I, I was heading the cloud security business at Checkpoint. And customers came and say, okay, Checkpoint, you're a security vendor. You invented the firewall. How do we secure serverless? That was interesting. This is where the initial hit was. And later on, my development teams also had serverless and used it to build other stuff. So it came basically from both ways. Oh, interesting. Yeah, this is okay, so we should definitely dive into that. Cause I
0: honestly don't don't know how to how to do that. So so we'll definitely jump into how to but first we should we should kind of give the overview of you know what is serverless. I think, you know, the first time I heard serverless, I honestly didn't know what to think because I thought, well, it's it's not running, you know, on your house machine. It's not running on this laptop, so so it has to run somewhere on a server. And so it, it didn't really I, you know, the name actually really beguiles what it really is, and so right. so how would you describe serverless to somebody?
1: You know, it's funny because um, there is a you know a known poster in the serverless community saying you know there are servers in serverless. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, right. So absolutely, so there are server, it's just not your server. Maybe that's a bit more uh, accurate. It's somebody else who's in charge of those servers. I'll give you my, you know, serverless is very dynamic. And I really want to say it's even kind of like used as a marketing term in many senses today, because it evolved over time. And some people have different definitions, but I want to keep this very, very simple in the way I define serverless. And uh, I define serverless, uh, or the main thing that I see as serverless providing uh, organizations is the fact that you don't need to care about servers. So you gave the example of, of a database where you need to deploy, a, you know, have a physical or virtual server. And on top of that, deploy an operating system and the application and maintain it and patch it and concern about high availability and scaling. And all of this stuff, if you think about it, those, most of this is commodity. You know and probably yep. me as, as 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 a company, that's not my business. I'm not doing that best in the world. and if I could offload that to somebody else because it's commodity it's generic, I could focus on what makes my business unique and what makes my business logic and service unique. and this is really much you know the evolution of the cloud. you know you took your on premise, don't buy physical servers, rent them from the cloud provider because they can do it better than you. You're not an expert in running servers. Same goes to operating system and running the application and databases over there. So you're not the expert in that. So if you are in that mindset, that's really the next evolutionary step. And my definition of serverless is you don't use, maintain, deploy, patch servers. You consume the service. So if you think about it, it, my why definition is, everything today that is as a service is classified as a serverless. And maybe the most known are function as a service, you know, lambdas, Azure functions, mm-hmm. uh, Google Cloud Functions, uh, which you can just you know write a couple of lines of code, upload them to the cloud, and, and they run. You don't know where, you don't know on which server, you don't know if you need more firepower, you get it automatically. You don't need to care about autoscaling or all these other you know, big words that people have nightmares about.
0: Yeah, auto scaling is a huge mess. <laughs> we have an issue right now where there's spot instances where a spot instance means you you get this machine, but but Amazon or whoever can take it away at any moment. And so you get it, you can do as much work as you can really quickly and then they take it away. But they're really, really cheap, dirt cheap. And then there's reserved instances where, you know, Amazon says, you know, we're going to guarantee you 99, you know, a million nines availability on this, this machine. And so you, you want to save money, but you also want your things to run. And so we've been struggling with auto scaling so much. Anything that keeps you from having to deal with that, I can tell you firsthand is, <laughs> is a huge benefit.
1: Uh, uh, Jason, it's it's not just you. I just want to say. It. Don't <laughs> yeah, I <in> think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Good. Uh, so so yeah, so you know it's it's functional service, it's databases as a service, you know, DynamoDB, Snowflake, it's Kafka as a service, like Q, and even payment as a service, Stripe, PayPal with yep. APIs. All of these are what I define as serverless because you don't maintain a server, you consume them via API, they auto scale without you worrying about. And today a serverless architecture basically allows you to use all these Lego pieces and connect them together, and you have an application running w- within days if you have the right construct. And this is really uh, the big promise of, of serverless. Cool. Yeah, that was a great, great explanation. Yeah, I mean, I'm
0: th- I'm sure a lot of folks out there have had to deal with compatibility issues. You know, like you know, you install Python or Python comes with, you know, Debian or Ubuntu, Mm -hmm. but it's like, oh no, you need Python 3 to run this program. So it's like, okay, now I have to go download Python 3. And then, and then, you know, maybe a year later or a few months later, you want to try this other program. And it's like, oh, this other program requires Python 3.8, but the last one, you know, doesn't work on 3.8 and now you have incompatibilities and it just becomes a huge mess. Right. And so you're using things like virtual env and Python or Docker, which is more general, you know, you containerize these things so that you can have, you know, Python three seven and Python three eight running at the same time, and you don't have to worry about them stepping on each other or keeping separate directories for everything and sandboxing everything yourself. And then, and then to your point, you know, once you have these these sandboxes, these packages, well, why even run them on your machine? You can run them anywhere.
1: Exactly. And why scale them? Right? Like, like. What's actually happening in serverless is, as you mentioned, there are servers, but Microsoft, Amazon, Google, they're actually the one that's monitoring this automatically. And when they identify there is higher demand, they will allocate additional servers or reduce the servers really precisely to what you need. It's not a server that comes spinning up. It's a specific function within the server. So you can get really granular to what you need and that's uh, the other point of, you know, you get what you need, you pay for what you need in service environment.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So some of the things are, you know, I would say somewhat intuitive. So for example, MySQL, you know, Amazon has RDS, you know, they'll handle MySQL for you. But, you know, at that level of granularity, you're still allocating individual machines. It's just that Amazon is handling the MySQL, you know, installation and updates and all of that. But you still have to go and ask Amazon, you know, I want this machine, I want that machine. And it's running MySQL, which is not your code, right? And so Lambda, I think, is another level of complexity for folks. Like, like I think it's really, you know, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around, you know, I have this Python file on my machine that's running on a installation on my machine, on a WSL machine, and somehow I have to sort of teleport this into the cloud and how do I do that with dependencies and everything else? And so, yeah, if you could just kind of explain a little bit like, you know, and now Lambda does other things too. I think it does JavaScript, it does, you know, I think anything that you can run in Docker. And so how, how do people sort of like take what they're doing that runs, works on their laptop and sort of teleport that to Lambda? Like how do they do that efficiently?
1: That's a great question. I want to start by saying it's not, there's no magic over here. Usually the process of taking something, you know, just from my laptop or my existing application and moving it to serverless requires a different line of thought because serverless is really about microservices. You know, we talked about the Lego pieces. So you can no longer have a VM that has a database and, you know, some cache and some code and all of that in the same VM, or it's, it's breaking down to DynamoDB and redis and lambda and it forces you to adopt Microservices some call it nano services today just because of the number of services, but So if you have a big monolith moving to Microservices and serverless requires work rank mindset shift Once you get there, you, you just you know, you map this is a, you know, this is a, which is very healthy, I would say in an architectural view, you decouple the different business logic and the point that you have. And then you say, okay, this is my storage and, my data access, and this is where I'll put it, and it will be DynamoDB. We'll front it by a Lambda that will actually do the data, uh, uh, crunching of uh, or transformation that is needed. And we'll add you know, queues in the middle, just to make sure there are no dependencies and we decouple that. And at the end of the day, you'll take all of this, you'll upload that to the cloud and you fire a request and uh, it will run. But uh, I think that the, the to your question, if you have just like, you know, a you know, hundred line of code, taking them from the laptop to a Lambda, for example, it's super simple. It's literally like 20 minutes to get this running. You put the code out there in AWS console and you, you hit run. If you're talking about a monolith, that requires you know more decoupling.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So what do you think have been sort of the, like what are some interesting stories or interesting challenges you've faced or seen other companies face when they go to serverless, especially companies that have already built something that might be like a monolith architecture? What are some really interesting challenges you found?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, I think in general, and that's a problem of, I think everybody today. Getting everybody wanna do you no know, microservices, serverless Kubernetes, you choose it, but everybody's talking about that. Uh, in reality, getting out of the monolith is really hard. Like, extremely hard. Not because of the architectural pain, because there, you know, there's always something more important, more critical, and it takes time. It's refactoring. So mm-hmm. we see a lot, a lot of new projects, you know they have they say okay we have the legacy legacy will continue and we'll break it bit by bit and that's one approach by the way let's take this part and you know tear it off and make this serverless and this part and you know gradually doing that but we see a lot of new projects that are born to microservice born to serverless and a lot of startups starting up as Uh, serverless. So that would be like um, the the, the most common uh, use case today. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think one of the challenges in in terms of the paradigm is that you you don't have something that's available 24-7, right? In other words, you you don't have a machine in the cloud that can just sit there idle, but it's ready at any moment. And so you really have to think in terms of signals and events and triggers. And and you have to think in this way. I mean, personally, like one of the challenges I saw in the beginning was there was something that I wanted every day around midnight to do this really big computation. And like lambdas are designed to do kind of relatively small things. They're not designed to wake up Every day, and do something that takes two hours. Right. And so, what I ended up having to do was to wake up, you know, at at midnight, decide what I want to do, which you can do pretty quickly, and then create a bunch of uh, messages. Um, They have this thing in Amazon called SQS, like a queuing system. You know, queue up a bunch of these messages of all these little work package descriptions. And then like a whole bunch of lambdas will just start picking things off of that queue until it's empty. And, you know, any one item on the queue could be done in a, in a minute or two. And so that actually required a really big refactoring because I used to just say, okay, it's midnight, you know, wake up. Like you used to have a cron, uh, you know, something in crontab that just wakes up this Python program. And then, you know, I'm a Patrick and I used to work together at Lockheed and you know I write research code Patrick writes real code right so my my research code would spin up and it's just one giant python file and it would it would it would run for you know 2 hours and something and then it would stop and so uh you know and so that ended up being a really big change but when I was done with that change I was so much happier with the result because the 2 hour thing you know would crash sometimes. And if it crashed at 1.9 hours, that's super frustrating, right? And so this, you know, you, you you farm this out to a bunch of lambdas. And even if, you know, what would be the last item in my database, if that one actually crashed, it actually doesn't matter because I had factorized it down and the other, you know, 1.9 hours, that, that work is committed. And I just have to debug the part that failed. So this is similar to what we were talking about with Guillermo on Next.js. You know, some of these things can seem kind of opinionated. It's like, oh, why can my lambda only run in five minutes, whatever the timeout is? Mm-hmm. But actually, when you when you follow those those sort of rules, which seem really rigid at first, what you end up with is actually something that's way more beautiful than w- when you started. And 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 people who have you know made their like entire life work on you know, creating a beautiful developer experience. They made those rules with that in mind. And so if, usually if you follow them, you end up with something a lot nicer.
1: I completely agree. And and I think the others, and, and we actually, you know, I give an example of one of our customers that actually did pretty much the same. He had like a huge task, like several hours that was rendering of, of uh, you know, of uh, images. And he decided to go serverless and he broke this into exactly the same model, by the way, uh, you know, small messages that you can digest, but The side effect, um, I'm not sure it was a side effect, actually, but what happened, he was able also to, you know, to, to create parallelization Of the execution. So he all of a sudden could run, you know, 500 lambdas at the same concurrent time so it can get the job done in a matter of minutes compared to hours just because he broke it in smaller pieces. So that's another, you know, I think something that you get out of, you know, modeling this and decoupling and building it in microservices or a different mindset.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, so, so a lot of people will probably want to know, you know, if you run something on your desktop, you can... Um, um just create a log file and so you know you can have a log file for every day and every time you run this job you get a log file now you've you've sort of exploded this into all of these lambdas and so you have to be really diligent and 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 careful about how you do the logging so that right. so that you can recover um especially you might have 99% success But that 1%, you know, is a crash that you would have seen. Now you have to sort of go digging in the haystack to find it. And so what's what's been your experience with, with sort of being able to instrument things like Lambdas?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you're touching a very, one of the most painful points when it comes, in general, to distributed services and microservices. Usually you can just go to a server, a monolith server, open the log file and understand what happened in a sequential way. That breaks when you're working in distributed environment microservices, especially when you have you know, thousands or, or, or millions of uh, events and requests every minute. And this is where distri- a concept called distributed tracing uh, comes in. And, and, and the concept is, is fairly simple. The concept is we want to mark every one of our logs in a let's say unique identifier that, that identify what which requests this log belongs to. So if I have a request going across 20 services, I want all of them to be colored you know, green, which means like this is request five, 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 six, seven. And then I can you no, know, I can you know take it to let's say an elastic and, and, and search for that request ID, and boom, I have all of the story of that request end-to-end. Uh, that's critical for anyone who want to go microservices with more than just you know a couple of requests per second uh, because if you don't do that, you really are not able to find the logs you just have like many many logs you know millions of logs, and you don't you can't understand where is one transaction starting and when 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 is it ending
0: yeah j- just to kind of explain that with an example so you know we've talked about. Batch jobs and breaking that up, but the majority of, of serverless is going to be, you know, a response to something like a web request or something like that. So imagine you upload a photo to Google Photos or something like that. And so, you know, you, you have this upload request, you uh send a file to them, some JPEG file, then they need to do a bunch of pre-processing on that file. Maybe they'll look for faces of your family so that you can find them later. And there's all this work that has to happen. And so there's many different steps there. Some of it is, is image processing. Some of it is storing things in a database, storing the image in some some kind of data store. And so any one of those steps could fail. And also, any one of those steps could fail, and it's not their fault. So in other words, imagine the, the system that accepts my image somehow has an issue with casing and converts the file name to uppercase and we're using the file name to key on things and then sends the wrong key to my lambda so then my lambda goes to grab the image it's not there and it crashes but it wasn't the lambda's fault per se it was just that the system that sent the lambda that image you know had an error in it right and so, and as you said, there's millions of these happening, and, and let's assume they're not all failing in this way, just a small percentage. So, so having that unique ID that just follows this request through all these different systems allows you to say, oh, at the very end, when I went to store, you know, there's this face and this image, when I went to store that, it crashed. But that actually happened because on the browser, I let someone upload a webp file and actually we don't support that. And so I actually need to fix something on the client side because of a bug I found way down in the pipe at the end of the pipeline. Um and so yeah, having that having that ID if you don't have that ID it's almost impossible to connect all those dots.
1: Absolutely. I think um so yeah, so I think this this is a core concept uh, of you know logging, monitoring, debugging of serverless and microservices um and and it forces you to have you know to plan so you need if you are architecting this uh, entire process like like you mentioned you need the different development teams to know that for every service that you're using they need to remember to get a request id from the service calling them and to pass that request id down downstream to the next service to so the next user and get this within their logs. And that's um you know and that's a way to handle to your question, to handle logs and logging in general in those environments, you know, in a in a serverless and microservice environment. But that's also the challenge because getting this process, procedure in place across different team and organization is really really hard to get people to remember to do that to get them to do that for new services to chase after them and this is where some companies bigger companies like you know like netflix like airbnb google of course and others are basically doing that internally on their own and they have the processes and tools and instrumentation that help them do that and in some cases, there are other, you know, other companies that are providing that service automatically, so that taking the burden off the actual developers doing that. Or there are some framework and open open framework, open tools that allow you to do that yourself and not inventing the word.
0: That makes sense. What about just logging more broadly? So, you know, if people know right now if they write a Python program, they type print you know, hello world, and they see hello world on the screen, right? When you do print hello world or whatever is the equivalent on Lambda, like what actually happens and how do people be able to see that?
1: Yeah, so in general, AWS services all log to the same uh, the same product, logging product, which is called CloudWatch. Uh, in CloudWatch, let's say if you output something to the console from, you know, hello load from the Lambda, uh, you will get that and you'll be able to see that uh, i think the main thing is that you're getting a lot of things into there but it exists it's just like you're not you know logging into a server to check the log file on a server or sshing into a server you go to a as a service logging system called cloudwatch where they are getting all the logs and ag- from everywhere all the services aggregated and allow you to watch them
0: Got it, got it. Okay, that makes sense. Cool. And so and so yeah, I see your point. So so now it almost becomes like and I think you mentioned Elastic earlier. Yeah, it's almost like you need a search engine for your logs because you know you're doing things at such an extraordinary scale that becomes very difficult to like you can't just read all of it.
1: Exactly. So you need a search engine and you need a way to search by, like you need the request IDs or the trace IDs that we talked about to to know what to search for. So exactly.
0: God, I see. Oh, oh, now it makes sense. So basically you say, okay, in in Elastic or MySQL or one of these things, you say, you know, give me all of the logs um, from this request ID, you know, let's say sorted by time. And now you see a whole window of this request ID that might span many different lambdas and machines and operating systems and everything. And maybe even the browser, if you're pulling, if you're dumping logs from a browser, you know, to the server. And so you can see this whole history, like okay, on this machine this happened, on this machine this happened, you know over here, you know on this service this happened, and then here's a crash, and and I can kind of watch all of it. Exactly
1: on this non-machine, but exactly <laughs> because yeah, 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 <laughs> and all of
0: that is on is on a separate yeah serverless thing. So actually, what about crashes? So if something crashes in any of these things, like in a Lambda, what actually happens?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So this is where uh, things get, uh, I would say, kind of like Twilight Zone, uh, because (laughs) I I think as you mentioned at the beginning, there are servers and basically lambdas are running on top of ADA in the case of Amazon, on top of AWS container where you don't have access to, you don't see it, which is running on a virtual machine on EC2 and that software and that EC2 can crash, that EC2 can run out of memory, that containers can crash. And that's really the infrastructure of the lambda. So, first of all, it happens. I want to say very clearly, it, it's nothing is bulletproof. So it happens to to any cloud provider. In some cases, at the beginning, you know, three, four, five years ago, you you know, the, the, this actually, you know, the, the the request execution of the lambda actually disappeared all of a sudden, which was very frustrating because you couldn't even track what was going on. You didn't know there was a crash. It just disappeared. This got better and now you got more indication that there was a problem. It's not, it's not solved yet, but again, these are the places where tooling allow you to understand what happens. So monitoring tool, um, you know, Lumigo is one of them, but, but others are allowing you to, they identify such cases and they let you know, there was a crash over here. With this lambda, even though maybe the cloud provider didn't report, it, couldn't get it to report because everything crashed over there. But since this is an external vendor, external service, seeing you know like starts and doesn't see end, can identify this never ended and there was a crash and alert about that.
0: Oh, interesting. So, so that got it. Okay. So, so if if, if like uh, your Python program throws an exception, and so this is like a relatively benign crash. Then in this case, um, I guess CloudWatch you might be able to see in CloudWatch, you know, that Python failed or something like that. But you're saying you know, it could get even more gnarly where something crashes. You know, your program might have been fine, but something crashes environmentally, and and that is yeah that that sounds really difficult to debug. And so so you're saying something uh, some monitoring tool can say well, you know, I'm following this request. And I'm watching out for this request and, you know, I didn't see a crash, you know, on our end or anything like that. I just saw this request disappear. And so, you know, maybe we need to rerun it or there's all sorts of different mitigation strategies, but at least you have visibility into that. You can say, OK, I'm sure, you know, it's been three hours. You know, I'm sure something unhealthy has happened with this request.
1: Yeah. And and to your point, since Lambda today only runs 15 minutes, then, you know, you can know that after 15 minutes, uh, worst case.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And so what about like um, you know, I know for you know doing mobile development, there's things like bug snag, rollbar, there's these things that can, you know, uh package up exceptions and send them to a server really quickly before before the machine dies, right? Or before your app dies. And so is there something like that for Lambda? Something where, you know, I can get all of the crashes in some kind of dashboard
1: yeah so i i want to say that you know i think your your point is very valid those needs doesn't go away when you go serverless you still need to you know very detailed information and fast about about every exception uh the main thing is that you need to get the context you know one service out of a out of hundred failing what does that mean to my application? You have to have the connectivity, the distributed tracing. So you need basically both. It's not that you know distributed tracing solves that, and you don't need rollbars, Sentry, or others anymore. You need everything. So uh, this is why you know things are getting more and more interesting and complex. Uh, and yet yeah, there are the modern tools that are out there dealing with serverless monitoring and serverless distributed tracing will do both. Will basically perform the distributed tracing, showing you an end-to-end story of every request, will show you dashboards of health exceptions of the application, like you mentioned, and also of the infrastructure, you know, with different timeouts and and things that's really common in those environments. And number three will allow you, like you mentioned in Rollbar, to drill down into a specific exception and get all the details that you need in order to understand the root cause you know and, and go upstream understand what happened and fix that so this is really what the industry is experiencing in terms of what's changing in the realm of uh, monitoring we see that kind of like coming together of the different domains and you're starting to see modern tools that they encapsulate all of those cool that makes sense um so so
0: we could jump into. I think we should we should end on on monitoring and security. But before we do that, we could put a bookmark in that for the moment. Let's jump into securing Lambdas. So I, I know that um, um, you know, there's uh, there's VPCs, so those virtual private. Uh, actually, what's the C for connection or network? Uh, no,
1: cloud, cloud.
0: Oh, cloud. Okay, but there's these virtual private uh, clouds where you know it's um you know you have your own protected address space and so people can't just call your lambda with arbitrary inputs and all of that so so from a networking perspective i can see that as 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 you know, obviously being super important but also like pretty comprehensive so what other things do people need to do um you know to keep lambda secure so that they're not um you know leaking really important information or allowing intruders to to call their functions and and you know DOS attack them and stuff like that, right? So,
1: so a, I think the main concept with microservices in general and Lambda specifically is to be very aware and to have a well defined um, roles for every service for every microservice. So, my service is doing, you know, let's say your example, my service is allowing a picture to be uploaded to the website. That's what my microservice does. It's one out of 50 that that allow my application to run. And if that's my sole definition of the microservice, and it's, it's not allowed to do anything else, it should be very strict, then I can also apply very strict security policy to that microservice because there's no reason for that microservice, let's say, to to access some remote server. Uh, and there's no reason for that microservice to start sending information. So by having microservice environments, and specifically with Lambdas, for example, by having a very clear task of what that Lambda does, you can define through security groups, through IAM roles, which are different security definition, very granular, a least privileged security concept or, or rules for that service. And then when this is, like you get the example with a container, when it's very clear and kind of packaged with a security, then I don't really care if that's reside within a VPC or outside of VPC has access to the world or not, because the security is very, very tight and you know goes along with that service. So that's a concept of security for microservices that um, is very very popular oh that makes sense yeah i didn't think about
0: that but but yeah that that makes a ton of sense so basically you have these different you know identity roles and so for example the 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 queue which queues up images to be um um, scanned for faces you know that queue might require it to add or remove from that queue might require a role like you know Mm -hmm. the the scan faces role and so most of the system most of these microservices you know they don't have that permission and so um you know yeah this you know you hear so much about um you know people they they hack into and actually i think patrick i think we we have lined up in the future someone who actually is a Uh, I think a white hat hacker, I think that's the term, like someone who hacks things, but for, uh, to to cause good, um, to kind of help, you know, secure things. But so Patrick, I have no background in hacking um, or anything like that. But, but, you know, you hear stories of, you know, they come in, they hack, and then they get everything. It's like, oh, they downloaded your entire source code repository and your, your, they select star your whole database or MySQL dumped your whole database. And they have like, they have everything and they ransomed all your machines. So you have to pay them Bitcoin to get them back. And so, you know, serverless seems like, you know, we, we talked about how, you know, you have this all these sort of complexities because of the dis- distributed nature of it. But it's also, you know, it can even be sort of self-healing where, you know, if you, um, start, if you start getting a lot of errors saying, hey, so, so-and-so service is trying to access all of these things and they're getting blocked. Uh, you know, you'd have some some count of how many access control violations. If you see that go through the roof, you know right away that you need to lock everything down. And so it, it seems like if you go serverless, you're inherently just much more protected um, from some of these like, massive attacks like you hear. like There's the one on Target last year. And um, um, so you could avoid a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I think that you need to be aware of that and think about that in order to be really protected. And I'll explain why. Uh, because one of the promises of serverless is You don't need to deal with scaling. You know, we got you covered say saying AWS Microsoft Google and this is great, right because I During the night nobody accesses my my site So no point for me to pay for a server and during the day or during a uh, Black Friday My sales picks, you know, and goes like 500 500 acts of what I do. So and I, I don't want to keep servers up and running all the time. So, uh, so it's really, really adjusted. But at the same time, it's attacks and Black Fridays can look very similar. Uh, and, and the the cloud provider will allow you to, to grow. So sometimes we have the notion of in a serverless environment that there there's a concept of insecurity called the denial of service, where you try to attack a server and they, try take him down by flooding him with requests until he cannot serve legitimate users. In serverless, that usually doesn't happen because you'll get more and more firepower from the cloud provider. It will just cost you more. So 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 some call this denial of wallet instead of denial of service. <laughs> I
0: was thinking yeah. denial of credit score, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that might also be be, be a good. One. <laughs> But but my point is that uh, you know you can adjust with it. You can handle this. Like you can decide where are my limits, and it's very easy to define the limits. You probably need to have, you know, again monitoring of your costs to raise a flag when you know you go high wire and hey something wrong here and get a pager duty about that. The only thing is this is not out of the box, but out of the box. You need to have this mindset, like like you mentioned, in order to be aware that i need to think about that and and implement something
0: yeah that makes sense That's a really good call out cool yeah we touched on a lot of really really good things here so let's dive into into lumigo here so you know we talked about um you know how to monitor we talked about the the breadcrumbs and the request id mm-hmm. um, and so what does lumigo do to make a lot of this kind of easier for folks
1: so i th- i think you know when we started lumigo this is exactly what we 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 had in front of us. Like seeing all of this, everything, all of our talk actually, uh, is is complex. It's complex to implement, especially if you're not expert in this. And honestly, most people have so much to do that they shouldn't be dealing with that. They should be dealing with their business logic, exactly like yep. what the serverless concept is about. So We built Lumigo with that mindset of making, allowing the team, the developers to get that offloaded to us. So we are, uh, with Lumigo, we allow you to have this, you know, breadcrumbs or end-to-end view of every transaction. And we developed the technology to do that without any code changes on your side, without any change to the data. Uh, and without deploying agent, which is sounds really weird because how do we do that that's kind of like the, the first thing that the developers asked me when. yeah, definitely um, yeah so it's it's a lot of algorithm uh, deterministic algorithm that we developed over the last three or four years that allow us to basically understand uh, the what transaction looks like and find unique identifiers of transaction, even if you don't want to add a request ID along the way. And this is the, the core deep technology of Flumigo. So we managed to do that for you without touching code or data. And that's a magic. And we do it to all the main services today. Can you double click on that? Cause I'm trying to wrap my head around it. So, so
0: um, okay, so, so I say I want to upload a photo. So your user ABCD says they want to upload a photo. The request comes in. The photo gets uploaded to some S3, you know, um, signed URL or something. And then now, you know, we kick off a bunch of serverless. We we put a bunch of things onto a queue saying, you know, uh, crop this photo 10 different ways, you know, look for faces in the photo. Right. And so I feel like if you don't put and and so those serverless functions, because of the encapsulation we want from we talked about earlier, they don't necessarily even have the user ID who wanted to, to upload the photo in them. They just get a request. Here's a photo. And so I feel like, yeah, if you don't put the request ID, it seems almost impossible to yeah. connect the dots, right?
1: Yeah, you're yeah, absolutely right. So, so first of all, that's the, the magic. And let me now take the the charm of the magic and explain how we do that. Okay, but no, don't tell anyone. Uh, well, all right. Yeah, going. no one's listening. No, just yeah, kidding. <laughs> yeah. the, the main concept is, and and by the way, just before I hit that, think of that. If let's zoom in on you know what you mentioned, you know, writing the the image to S three and that triggers some lambda to start working. Even if you want to get a request ID across, you can't. Because that's a file. Where do you put a request ID to go across S three? That it's a ah, big, yeah, right. it's a big problem regardless, even if you you know, you wanna do that in a service environment. That's really, really Yeah you know, I just to yeah, just to explain that real quick. So, so
0: you know, the way things work when you upload things like photos and videos from your phone, it doesn't go through a server. You know, so, so the server that's serving you this website or whatever, they're not actually taking your entire video and moving it into S3 for you. They're giving you this what they call a um, signed URL, and so they're basically giving you permission to up to directly upload something to Amazon, and so. Um, and then the lambda you know that's something we didn't we didn't cover, but lambdas are are triggered, and so the trigger can be based off a message that's sent by something else, or they can also be triggered off changes to your your s three or changes to your environment. they can be triggered off a change to your database and so you know as Erez was saying, you know this lambda fired because it saw a file in S3 and it has no idea wh- how that file got there.
1: Exactly. And even if you want, getting a request ID across, is, it's not your API. It's not your server. You cannot implement that. Yeah. And, and the way we do it, you know, we have a lot of cybersecurity expertise and backgrounds. And we found a way to identify that the request, you know, the the file that was written has some attribute as part of it. There are metadata of the file. There are metadata of the request. uh, There are actual data points going in. and, And all of this exists also and available for the Lambda that get triggered from the fact that that file was written to S3. So that information, is available from both sides of S3 for someone, you know, some platform like Lumigo. And through algorithms that we developed, we were able to infer just by looking on the existing data, metadata, and other signals that this is the same request. So we inferred that, we kind of build this, call it virtual request ID that doesn't exist anywhere. But we know that it's the same request, and it's one hundred percent deterministic. So that's you know it's very very technical. So sorry for that, but that's a really no. That's super cool. That yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think like one you know
0: simple way to think about it. I, I'm sure this is not. I'm sure what you're doing is more complicated than this. But you could imagine the the system that gave that person permission to you know write to that to that file. So that that request, if, if we have that information, then maybe that request has a user ID in it or something like that, or, or at least you know, we can remember that request. And then when we see the file show up, we can sort of connect the dots that way. But yeah, it's, to your point, I mean, it, you know, to do it in a way that you know, it's one thing if you're building the program, but to do it for somebody else and you don't know what program they're running, that I think is really challenging. So that's, that's pretty wild that it's able to do that.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, it, it took us a lot of time. It took us uh, almost three, more than three years to to build and cover all the services. And uh, I think that's, that's, you know, one core of what Lumigo does. So basically, simplifying this, after five minutes, no code changes, no deployment, no agents, you have a full view of your, let's call it AWS architecture and request end-to-end. Every request, you click on it, all of a sudden you see dozens of services align and you see the request story from one end to the, the other end. And and that's a, that's a one core. The other is what you mentioned is about identifying issues. So we know to alert when things go wrong. So it's application issues, it's infrastructure issues. You mentioned the crashes that uh, are elusive in the infrastructure out-of-memory latencies, so many things that you need to care about in serverless and microservice environment, we got this out of the box. So you get alerts, you click on that, you dive to see the request end-to-end, you see the actual data passing across because we record the data. And by having this as a developer, usually it will take you, you know, minutes to figure out what the root cause and, and, the, you know, and plan effects.
0: Very cool. So so okay, so there's no agent, which is really interesting. Um, so I guess the way that the integration here with Lumigo must be through some kind of like cloud formation or Terraform or something like that, where 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 we create a role for for Lumigo and then Lumigo goes in and 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 adds some services of their own or or does how does how does how how do we someone actually get it set up?
1: Yeah. So I think you got it. The main point is a cloud formation, including an iron roll. So basically when you onboard Lumigo is a self-serve platform, you know, you can go to the and, and click start a, a, an account and it's literally four clicks to, to fully be connected, to, to be fully connected. Again, no deployment that you need to do. But what happened in those four click is number one, exactly what you said. You click and allow Lumigo to Get information from your cloud, your logs, configuration, things like that. Uh, that's an IML wrapped in a cloud formation, exactly like you mentioned. The second point is that Domigo, you decide which of the lambdas and services you want Domigo to observe and to monitor. And on those services, we have an integration specifically with AWS uh, that is called Lambda Layer. Uh, and this allow, allows us through code libraries to listen to the requests going in and out of every service. And through that, allow us to do the magic of connecting the dots, identifying, allow you to see what data passes. So those two concepts are what's really building the technology, allowing us to, to show you all of that.
0: Ah, cool. That makes sense. And so um, what about on databases? Like, does, Can Lumigo connect the dots between Lambda and, and, and like DynamoDB requests?
1: Yeah, that's actually a pretty popular one. So think of a a Lambda trying to write, you know, writing a record to a DynamoDB, and this can also trigger another Lambda to do something else. Right, right. Yeah, so it's exactly the same as S3 concept. It happens to be very complicated in terms of DynamoDB, uh, but it's the same way, you know, as we figured S3, we figured DynamoDB out, and we figured all of the, main AWS services. So DynamoDB, S3, Kinesis, API Gateway, Step Functions, SQS, SNS, you know, everything that everybody uh, uses, we are able to do that, again, automatically without uh, the code, the changes or data changes. Cool. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm totally going to check this out. Yeah, I have
0: some internal projects I can try this out and report back. Actually, this, let's dive into something really interesting. So what's, What's the sort of, um, you know, we have a lot of folks who are, you know, students, college students, high school students mm-hmm. who are just getting started in the field, who are changing careers. And so, you know, for people who are hobbyists, what are the sort of opportunities in Lomigo? Like, what's the pricing like and all of that?
1: Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, we built Lomigo initially for the community. So we have a very um, generous community here, which is absolutely free. And it's you know it's hosted uh, uh, by Lumigo, so you don't need to deploy anything. But if you're a student, if you have a private project, or even if you want to run this within your company, and your volumes are low, less than one hundred and fifty thousand requests per month, you should just connect and run it. It's for free, and we have you know we have many 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 such uh, companies and users and. That's a that's a great uh, you know way for us to, to contribute to the community and get uh, uh, connected with the community. And uh, again, we don't think twice about you know whether to use this. Some use it for actually live debugging of their production. Many use it. And many students, for example, use it as part of their development process. So if I want to develop something during the development, I want to run a test. And if you run it, and you know just Go to Lumigo and try to understand: Was it successful? Did it fail? How did it evolve across the different services? And this really, really gets you, you know, to debug your dev environment much faster. So, yeah, so very easy to start uh, for free. No,
0: very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And so the free tier is 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 it for like a month or is it unlimited? It's just it's just free as long as you you uh, don't exceed the quota.
1: Exactly. It's not limited in time. It's just oh, very you know, cool.
0: Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely yeah. check this out. Yeah, I will <laughs> I'll, uh, uh, I'll check report this out.
1: <laughs> report back on Twitter
0: and let people know uh, know uh, how this goes. Yeah, this is uh, um, yeah. I have a, a number of side projects that are really hard to debug that are running on on Lambda. At uh, this would be uh, really really cool. So let's talk about Lumigo, the company, a little bit. How, how long has Lumigo been around, and and how many folks are out there uh, are at Lumigo right now?
1: Yeah, so we've been around for uh three and a half years. Uh and we've around not around. We're thirty 30 ish uh people now, most of us are developers uh based in Tel Aviv in Israel. Uh, and yeah, that's that's us. Cool.
0: And so are you um looking for like interns or full time folks and um and if so, is uh, um, like where geographically are you looking, and all of that?
1: Yeah, so you know, we're we're, we're growing, and we're looking um, for you know people who want to to join. Mostly, we're looking for uh, full time employees. Uh, we have the development and product team based in Tel Aviv, and we're always looking for additional uh, people. Uh, we're now growing. Opening an uh, no, office, or for now, virtual office in in, in the US, uh, and, and uh, we're gonna have our uh, uh, sales organization uh, finally starting to grow sales organization there. Uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's an exci- exciting exciting uh, stage. And um, beyond that, uh, we are. I am always looking for. I would call it serverless uh, enthusiasts people that really dig into serverless that love the, what it is, the community that wanted, you know, be our representative within the community, help the community speak in in, in sessions, in conferences, they create blogs. This is a, you know, a lot of our work is toward the community to to, you know, we have a lot of insights to contribute that to, to the community. So I'm always on the lookout for Either people that want to do this, you know, freelancers or full-time, but if you love serverless and you're doing something interesting, that's something that I would love to 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 hear about.
0: Cool. Yeah. I mean, this, this is something that uh, um, comes up, you know, a recurring way. And so it's really good just to, you know, for people who are listening, maybe this, this is their first episode they've heard. Um, but really for everybody, you know, if you want to, Get into this industry, you know. Build lots of cool stuff. I mean, that is, I think the, the you know, um, eternal advice, right? Is is, you know, um, you know, if you want to decide which programming language you want to learn first, well, build something and and then kind of, uh, you know, Google around. Like, okay, other people have built similar things. What language did they use? Kind of always start from a goal. And so, if 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 you're interested in um you know doing monitoring and serverless and, and if this stuff really fascinates you and sort of being sort of this uh phantom of the opera but instead of you know a million different uh uh organs or keyboards you have a million different lambdas and you've you've mm-hmm. sort of mastered this craft then uh you know start building stuff um there's there's especially with lambda you know the AWS is a very generous free tier Lomigo is a very generous free tier there is nothing stopping anyone out there from building something and you could build a website that could that could scale to handle a million people a month um, without having to do a whole bunch of extra work. Um, um you could build something that just you and your parents like, and then if it goes viral tomorrow, it just it still works. Uh as opposed to like half of these hacker news articles where where uh you know they go viral and it kills the site. You know, your site won't do that um if you build it on serverless. So um so definitely, you know, folks out there. Um you know check this technology out I think it's awesome. So um so what is what is uh something unique about Lumigo the company? So you know is there something that uh you know is there like a uh retreat that you all do that's that's really unique or is there is there something you know maybe the way the desks are lined up or the way the company was founded some some kind of cool tidbit about the company.
1: Well that's a great question. I I I think maybe I think that I know I don't know if that's as cool as as you hope for, but I think that what makes uh, Lumigo at least today different is that almost any one in Lumigo, in almost any service, uh, so, you know, any department, is active or former developer. So and that goes, you know, also to you know to departments which relatively usually are not related to um, uh, to engineering. Uh, that's just because mm-hmm. that's the core community. That's the people that we interact with. Uh, that's our uh, so so. That's uh, really interesting. I would say profiles uh, that you see in Lumigo. You know the same <laughs> type of background of uh, people. But you know maybe a developer decided he wants to do try sales or try marketing or try product, and that's uh, that's I think what a uni- Lumigo is, is still a bit different. I'm not sure we can maintain that as you know, we have. Hundred or two hundred employees, but we're still very, very much dev oriented. Cool, that's
0: awesome. Yeah, I uh, yeah, it totally resonates. I think that that uh, I love companies like this that like you know, are there to really support developers because you know, you really feel like you're kind of helping your own and you're sort of like dog fooding uh, something. Like you you're building something that you would want to have yourself, which is really cool. Exactly. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I think we did an awesome job covering serverless. If folks out there have any uh, questions or if they want to you know, get on this free trial or if they want to ping you about something that you, you talked about and kind of follow up, what are good ways to reach uh, Lumigo, and also good ways to reach you?
1: Yeah, so, you know, if, if somebody wants to try out Lumigo, you can just, you know, go to our website and click on start and you know it's it's super easy you don't need to talk to anyone and you know five minutes to connect and that's free for uh, the free tier. so you can just go and do that uh, if you want to ask deeper questions on um, serverless on lumigo or in general on this uh, domain uh, please please ping me i really really enjoy talking to more and more people in our community and we love to help where we can because we have we have a lot of serverless expertise in Lumigo. We have what's called serverless heroes by AWS that they, within the company. Uh, and we, we actually managed to help from time to time to not just to our customers and users. So feel free to approach with any question. Uh, the best way to reach me would be through either a LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, like sending a direct message and uh, that would probably be the easiest path. Uh,
0: cool. Yeah. And we'll post in the show notes, you know, the the website and also your contact information and all of that. So check out the show notes for all the details. We'll also post to where uh, you could get on the trial and everything. Cool. Thank you again, Eros. This is an amazing episode. We covered a ton of really good topics here. I guess just the last bit of takeaway um, from my end, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you is, is, um, Definitely start with with serverless It can feel overwhelming because you know you don't have just a console right there. you don't see the logs right there. But I can tell you as someone who's built a lot of different things, it's so much easier to maintain and in fact, the things that I've built on the cloud are still there, you know, and a lot of the hobbies that I've built um you know on my desktop uh you know even the desktop doesn't exist anymore it's just in a trash heap somewhere because it's for, you know 20 years old or something. So so you know hardware fails. Um serverless stuff seems to last a long time. And uh and operating systems change, but your serverless function is containerized. You don't have to worry about that. So so check it out. Definitely, definitely good to learn. You know, you could be a beginner, you could be intermediate. One thing I tend to be, you know, I have a reputation for being extremely frugal. And one of the reasons I didn't get into serverless was because I didn't want to pay even like 17 cents a month or something like that that is ridiculous so don't don't be like me don't do that um spend the like one dollar a month or ten dollars a month or you know to 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 have something you know have the peace of mind have something that runs in the cloud you know they handle so much for you and uh and in, in for things like Lumigo that are free i mean it's a no-brainer you know try this out um you will have trouble debugging i mean i can speak from experience you know when you're when you're passing a lot of this information around it makes debugging um, you know, a challenge, but it's a challenge you're going to have to learn if you're going to, uh, you know, get a career in, in this industry. Uh, well, maybe, you know, I know Patrick does a lot of embedded stuff. So, so he might, he might uh, go, uh, scoff at that, but, but, it, you know, for, if you're building a website or you're building one of these big services, you know, that's a skill you're going to need to learn anyways. And so, uh, so definitely try this out and Erez, uh, you know, I'd love to head off to you. What are your uh, sort of closing thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I really, I want to echo what you mentioned. Um, you know, starting with serverless, first of all, it's fun. So go try it because it's fun. Uh, it's it's fun seeing how fast you can build things. There are great, great workshops out there. You know, you can take a two hour, three hours workshop that really take you uh, step by step on. And, and all of a sudden you have an application that, you know, you know order taxis or something and it's only took two hours. Then you can, and, and that's simple and that's straightforward. And then you basically, a lot of people fall in love at this stage and then start to investigate what they can do more. But start start small, try it out. Uh, you actually, when it's does, I think you have 1 million invocation for free from AWS. So it's, you know, it, it, even, Jason, even you can try it without the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so I think that, that's, that's what I want to echo definitely. Go and try this out. So.
0: Cool. Uh, Thank you again for coming on the show, Erz. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Jason and Pratik. It was a pleasure.
0: Music by Eric Barndaller.